<clears throat> for the opportunity that we have right now. You have given us this moment in history to partner with you and to co-labor with you in a world, Lord God, that is unsettled, in a world, Lord God, that is looking for answers. Jesus, I thank you that you still are the answer. Thank you that you are the living word that people, Lord God, are, are hungry for, but yet they don't even know it. Thank you that we have the opportunity to bring forth the living word of hope into lives right now in this season. God, I pray that you would help us to, to be vessels of honor that would see you honored and glorified in this season, that people's lives would be touched, changed, transformed for eternity. And Lord, uh, and for Lord God, the season that they're in in life. Lord, thank you for Pastor Joe now. Ask Lord God your blessing over our ears. Lord God, help us to hear, help us to see. Uh, Lord God, in new ways, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right there, Pastor Joe, go right ahead. Everybody, hey, let's welcome Pastor Joe. Come on, let's welcome Pastor Joe. That's the way we got to do it online, okay? There we go, very good. Or like this, however you want to do it. All right, Pastor Joe, go right ahead. Good. While I'm getting ready, uh, brother, can you allow me to share my screen by making me a host? I'd appreciate that. Let's see here. Thank you. So today, it's an honor to be with you. I'm going to get right into the message. If you want to talk with me more and understand my story or my wife and I and how we started the church in Chicago, wonderful time to do that would be afterward. If you have time, I have time. Uh, but let me just get right into the message. What I would like to do is talk to you about the war of the worldviews. And so I want you to imagine if you and I were to go on the Jimmy Kimmel show right now, or if we were to go to a Bill Maher show, how would we explain our Christian faith with the world and how they believe? And so still waiting to be able to share my screen, my brother, you just have to click on my name and allow me to be host. Um, when we think about our Christian worldview, the way I want you to imagine it is if you're putting on a set of glasses and you're looking out through the Bible, God's word, and seeing the world as a Christian. But not everybody does that. So when you go on to that Jimmy Kimmel show or Bill Maher show or a Joe Rogan show, whatever you can think of as popular now, they're also going to have on their worldview glasses. Thank you, my brother. And what's going to uh, come to pass quite quickly is there's going to be a clash of the worldviews. So we're not talking about a war in the literal sense. We're talking about a clash of ideals and what we believe. Now, I'm going to try to come in and out of the full screen so we don't just make this like a class. But let me get you some scriptures and some terms, and then I'll come out. And you can see my beautiful face in Chicago for Jesus shirt here. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So there is a war that we're in. You get that? But we don't wage it the way they do. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So we're not taking this on combatively with machine guns, tanks, planes, etc., on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now notice, we are in a war and we are demolishing things. Notice that, we are in a war and we're demolishing things. We're just not doing it like how the American uh, uh, ships or uh, planes rather dropped bombs on Hiroshima. We're not doing it like that, but we are in a war and we're demolishing strongholds. Verse five, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Coming out of full screen, let me get your, uh, your attention here. You are in a battle, 
You are in a war of worldviews, and it is your job as a Christian to demolish arguments and pretensions. So we have to get past the PC culture, politically correct. You are not going to be liked by everybody. Jesus said they hated me because I exposed their sin. You are not above your master. If your definition of love is everybody liking you, you don't have the biblical definition of love. If your definition of Christianity is really Niceanity, you're not understanding Christianity. Christianity is not always culturally nice. It's not always going to feel like love. Feelings are things that are subjective to people's opinions. And so oftentimes, we are Christians in our confession, but in our worldview, we're just like Oprah Winfrey. Let me give you a couple quick examples of this. When you begin to speak like Oprah speaks, you may not have her same religious view about Jesus, the afterlife, etc. But when you start speaking the way she speaks, you're sharing parts of her worldview. Now, notice Christianity is going to share a lot of worldviews with other worldviews. We don't believe in murder. A lot of other people don't believe in murder, etc. But let's take, for example, you're on the Oprah Winfrey show, and she says to you, well, what do you feel about homosexuals? How do you view Caitlyn Jenner, transgenders? Now, at this moment, you can perform a religious tap dance, as so many people have done. Now, try not to name names, though I'm always remembered for being the controversial one. But for your, for your soft listening ears, I won't name any names. But many have been on her show, or the Larry King, and have lost the ability to stand their ground and said they start tap dancing. You can try to do that, but if you watch those interviews, it actually confuses them because they're looking for a solid answer. They can give a solid answer back and go, we affirm Caitlyn Jenner. We love her as a woman. We love Paul. We love Ellen. We don't want them to change or to see themselves as deficient in some way. We want them to be affirmed in that lifestyle. Now, you have to ask yourself this question. What would I do if I was asked that question? Would you tap dance or would you do what Paul says, demolish the argument, demolish the pretension? Now, let's say Oprah hasn't made an argument yet, but she makes a pretension, a high and lofty thought. In other words, you can see that in the King James, these high thoughts. She makes this real high sounding just really just just intellectual argument for it. Well, you know, scientifically, uh, we're born with different genes, and we all start off as females, and then in the womb, we become males, and that extra chromosome, or, or you know, these other things, not chromosome, but you know what I mean, these extra things begin to happen, and so, uh, you know, we should understand scientifically, this, this, is, this is good, and, and you know, the people who live this way, they're happy, See, that's a high-sounding idea, isn't it? It sounds like it's lofty. The goal is to love. The goal is to affirm. Now, what are you going to do in that position? We'll come back to that scenario in just a few moments. But let me uh, get you some terms here to what I think you need to be ready to do. As we're thinking about what would we say to Oprah in that perspective? Well, I've given you the definition of worldview. The next thing I want you to think about is your epistemology. How you know what you know. It's the study of knowledge. Once you get into this conversation with Oprah, it is not going to be uh, your opinion versus her opinion that's actually going to settle the issue. 
it's going to have to be based on something objective. Subjective uh, uh, things are opinions, like how you feel, I feel. Objective things have to do with fundamental facts and truths. So when you start to discuss this thing with Oprah or Ellen, whatever show you want to imagine yourself on, Joe Rogan, you're going to have to know how you know what you know. Where did you come up with these ideas? Now, you're going to stand on the Word of God, and we're going to get there in just a moment, but you have to understand the person in the other side of the battle, and we're using the terms of Scripture, war. They're not our enemy in the sense of we hate them. We know we wrestle against flesh and blood, and we love them, but listen, we don't like the ideology. I love Roman Catholics, hate Roman Catholicism. I love Mormons. I hate uh, Mormonism. I love Hindus. Okay, here we go. The Bhagavad Gita. I love Muslims. I've written on it. Here's a book on Islam, right? I, I love these people, but I hate their ideologies. I, I tear down what they say they know and their lofty opinions that try to rise above the knowledge of Christ, and I tear it down. I'm ready to defend my epistemology. The next thing is we want to be ready to defend our ontology. Ontology is the study of nature, what is the nature of the things that I know? So epistemology and ontology, they go hand in hand. I want to know why I know what I know and how I came to know those things. And then the thing itself I know, I want to know the nature of it. Are we talking about inanimate objects? Are we talking about human beings? Are we talking about spirits? Are we talking about laws of nature? Are we talking about mathematics? There's a lot of different kinds of things. We need to know their ontology. Now, I don't have time to get into all of this, but the basis of logic is found in the scriptures. Now, you might say, well, I thought, I thought faith was illogical. I want to challenge that belief system right now. I want to show you in the Greek, the Bible, of John 1, 1. How many know this? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Do you know what that word word is? Logos? Did you know that logos is the root word for logic? Do you know that it would be appropriate to even translate it? In the beginning was the logic. And the logic was with God, and the logic was God. The logic became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Don't think of this as being something so esoteric that it takes away from the personhood of Jesus. Just understand in the same way that Jesus is truth, Jesus is logic. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is logical. There's nothing about Jesus that is illogical. Faith is never illogical. Faith may not coincide with what human reasoning can understand, but it's never illogical. Let me take the biggest one right now that people always say is illogical. Miracles. Miracles seem illogical. No, they don't. Let me ask you a question. If right now you were designing a video game, let's say Call of Duty, you're designing the video game Call of Duty. In Call of Duty, if someone gets their arm blown off, can you have them touch a health pack and the arm come, off, uh, come back? Yes, you can. If you were designing a cartoon like The Simpsons, could you make Bart Simpson walk on water? Yes. Why? Because logically, you control the system. You control the code. Miracles is God controlling the code. He has a natural order of things, but he can supersede his order. That's why it's supernatural. He can supersede his order at any time. What God cannot do is lie. The Bible says he cannot lie. That means God cannot tell a lie nor act in a lie. Being illogical is a lie. If I say all men are mortal, Joe is a man, therefore Joe is mortal. 
God agrees with that and cannot agree with the opposite of that. God is the foundation of logic. Here's another thought experiment. We discovered the laws of arithmetic, like Sir Isaac Newton discovering the law of gravity. We discover the law and we contemplate them in our minds and then we share them with other minds. Here's the question. We understand how a mind can receive it, uh, the knowledge of mathematics, the laws of the world, etc. And then we can understand how a mind can share it with another mind going forward. But let me ask you the question. What mind was that law in before Sir Isaac Newton discovered it? Sir Isaac Newton did not create the law of gravity. He simply ascended in his mind to the knowledge of the law of gravity. His mind comprehended it. A dog certainly didn't. And then he passed it on to other minds where what sphere, what mind did that knowledge exist in before he tapped into it? That's the mind of God. And so when we look at the mind of God, we look at a mind that is based on what we would now call the laws of logic, law of identity, law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle. You can take time to look at those different laws. Another thing that when we start discussing our worldview is that we have to understand the impossibility of the contrary, which means there are so many uh, things that we assume to be true because if they weren't true, it would be impossible to make sense of, out of everything else. Think about how many things you're already assuming to be true, and if they weren't true, it would be impossible to exist. You're assuming you're here right now. If you didn't assume that and you thought you were in the matrix or you thought you were in the God's dream or that you were the creation of a God that was created by another God, by another God, by another God, by another God, you can never have a moment right now to actually participate in. Think about yourself. You've never seen yourself. You see your body, you can lose a per part of your body, but you're still yourself. You take that to be true, that you exist, that you're in the world, all of these things. It's impossible for those things to be contrary and for us to have a conversation. It would be as if I say to you, I don't exist. What things have to be true for me to say the argument to you, I don't exist? I have to exist to make that argument. So those kinds of things we have to realize that people run into all the time and they don't know it. And the next thing is, as a Christian, and I will stop and take questions at the end if I can get through this quite quickly. The next thing that we have to understand is levels of knowledge. There are things that we can know for sure, and it's impossible for them to be otherwise. But then there are some other things that we're not so sure of, but we do our best to understand it. And so as a Christian, we should easily work within this framework, and I'll show you a picture of it here in just a moment. We should have an axiom, the foundation of all of our knowledge, which all knowledge is built upon. We should have very specific presuppositions that come from that axiom of knowledge that we can apply to the real world and make sense of it. And then we should be able to make propositions, statements of fact and truth as we go throughout the world. And then we should be able to make our best guesses for the things we're not certain of. Now, if you would talk to most non-Christians or Oprah and others, the way maybe we're in a world you battle with them, they're going to place science at the top thinking that is the most certain of all knowledge. Actually, science is at the best guess level of knowledge. It's the least certain. Some people say, I don't believe in God. I only believe in science. I believe in science because I believe in God. Tell me how science works without God. Ready, set, go. 
They can't do it. They can't explain mind from matter. They can't explain laws. They can't explain something coming from nothing. And so actually science is our best way of trying to understand what God has created. Let me show you the picture and you might understand it a little bit better. The Christian worldview is based on God's word. We make the presuppositions from God's, God's word that he's triune, he's a creator, humanity is sinful, that's how we explain evil. We, we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. We believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. God will judge the world. These are our major presuppositions. We couldn't prove them to someone like in the way they want to see the proof of whether or not I'm holding a book in my hand. But remember, they have presuppositions too. They have a presupposition, maybe there is no God or their God is one of many. And so those are the things we'll test as we go on in our conversation with them. But we'll grant to them the same ability to frame their own worldview as they're granting to us. And then we'll go to war, in other words. The propositions are judgments that we deductively derive from the Bible. We use those laws of logic to understand the world around us through our biblical framework. And then lastly, science is best guesses as well as your experiential claims. Meaning, if you can't say God makes me a person, I just feel I'm a person, I can run you in circles and have you feel like you're in the matrix. You cannot have a definite foundation of existence of the universe without appealing to God. I can show you that from secular philosophers like Bertrand Russell, who was a great atheist who hated Christians, wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. But he admits, without a proper foundation, a man on the street cannot know if he's a man or a fried poached or a poached egg, as he said. And so you might not believe me, or you might believe me, but your friend may not believe me. So I have the link here. Scientists know this. This is from Dr. Carlo Rovelli, a theoretical physicist, explains why science is not about certainty. Look at the bold print there. Science is not about certainty. Science is about finding the most reliable way of thinking at the present level of knowledge. Maybe you're happy now I sent you that link, right? You can go back and look at these things. I have the link to his article. And so in summary, Paul says, we're in a war, but we're not in a war with flesh and blood in the same way that they are in a military conflict. But we are in a war. We are called to demolish strongholds, but not forts, not military bases. What we're demolishing are pretensions and arguments. An argument is something that you're making a logical point to try to prove what you are believing. A pretension is just something you're holding on to that you feel is a high value. It's something that is uh, uh, admirable, something that you want to believe because you believe it's beneficial. Now, those things we can tear down with the word of God when we are confronted. And we ought to know what to do when we're confronted because we are being confronted continually. Like I said, whether it's just watching the TV, going out evangelizing, doing all these very different things. Now, the first thing that most people will do, in my experience, is they'll try to convince you that they want a neutral starting spot, that you give up the word of God, and they'll give up whatever they believe, and then together you'll use logic and reason and come to your own understanding. What they don't understand is no one is neutral, nor can they ever be neutral. You'll understand this as you get your master's and do other studies, that it's impossible to be unbiased. For you to be unbiased would mean you'd have to clear your mind of everything, including your language and reasoning capabilities and all your past experiences. 
So Jesus said, Luke eleven twenty three, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the idea that they want to call you to a neutral ground is actually their way of defeating you before the battle's even begun. They'll say, set aside your Bible, now prove your Bible. No, I'm keeping my Bible, prove your logic, and then we'll go from there. I'll prove my Bible, prove your logic. I can tell you from my Bible where logic comes from. Show me from the goo through the zoo to you where logic comes from. You want logic to be the arbiter between our discussion, and I'll set down my Bible, and you're going to supposedly set down your science book or whatever else you're holding on to. And there's great Christian scientists, by the way. Uh, but no, I'm not setting down my Bible. I'm not taking away my worldview. We're going to meet and discuss with both of our worldviews intact. So one of the ways you want to think about it is when I come into this discussion, am I forfeiting my very foundation to try to make a point? If I'm forfeiting my foundation, the word of God, then I am losing the point. Now, here's another way to look at it. Everybody in the argument or discussion over worldviews wants to use these things, laws of logic, uniformity of nature, the absolute morality that I'm not going to lie to you, kick you, or steal from you in the middle of this conversation. But remember, everyone has to give an account for this. Now another world religion may put their book there. So you want to go book versus the man, my book versus and Jesus versus your book, Quran and Muhammad, book and the man, book and the man. Let's go toe to toe. In love, of course. If you meet a secularist and they say, well, you know, I don't know where my things came from, but I just want to argue with you anyway. I have this actually on tape when we do street dialogue. They'll say, well, I don't know if I can prove I exist, but I want to keep arguing. Oh, hold on. You've just given up your ground. There's no more argument anymore. Listen now, right? If you, if your worldview cannot give an explanation for the things you're using to defend your worldview, then you have an insufficient worldview. Let me say that again. If what they are doing in the argument, like using the laws of logic, uh, of believing they exist and nature is the way it is, that's what uniformity of nature is, uh, means and all of that. If they're doing that in the argument, but their worldview cannot give a foundation for it, they've lost the argument already. We need to point that out to them. And so here's a way that I like to actually give to people on the streets when I'm hanging out with them. They say, oh, hey, hey, let me ask you this question about such and such a Bible passage, or let me ask you about this, or ask you about this. And they want to pretend as if they owe no foundation. All they need to do is be the skeptic and turn up their skeptic meter <laughs> all the way. What I like to do is just put on their brakes and go, hold on, hold on. Let's say that our argument is on level four. Let's see if you can get to level four by just answering four questions. Number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Oh, I want to know who, who Cain married. I don't care right now who Cain married. I want you, the one interlocking with me right now, to explain why is there something rather than nothing. Otherwise, who, otherwise who Cain married means nothing right now. Why are we talking about that? Number two, why are you a thinking observer? Why are you different than the animal that's still sniffing its behind, eating its young, and we put in a cage? Why are you a thinking observer? Number three, what well, grounds math and logic? Because uh, math, logic, science, I'm sure we're going to use all of that some, somewhere without in our discussion. What grounds that? What, why does that matter? Because if we're just dust on a speck of dust in a, in a galaxy full of a bunch of dust, why does this even matter? And I got to that point a little bit early. And why does logic and all of that matter? And so as you can see, most people can't even get to the argument. How do we get to the argument in our worldview? 
Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, God created it. Why am I a thinking observer? I'm made in the image of God. Why does logic ground math and science? Because God is logical, a God of, of order. Why does this discussion matter? Because the, the God of the Bible says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now what conversation do you want to have? You see, we can do that as Christians. When Jesus said that his word was a foundation, we were to build upon it, and everything else was sand, that's just not a cute Sunday school thing, friends. That's why science works. The word of God is the grounding of science. Jesus Christ is the grounding of all philosophical claims. Jesus Christ is the grounding of all nature. Jesus Christ is the grounding of all morality. If not, where? A lot of times people think, well, I can just create a God of my own imagination and put God there. Okay, let's give it a try. Your God versus my God. Let's go. Flying spaghetti monster versus Jesus. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, let's go. Did your God appear in history? Where's the flying spaghetti monster? And then they'll say, oh, well, he appears to me at night and gives me special words, and then I write them down. Okay, has he given you a 4,000-year prophecy? Has he sent his son? Did his son die on the cross, raised from the dead, and ascend to heaven? Has he left witnesses of himself? You see, all the gods of the nations are but idols. People can try. They can be silly and flippant, but they'll see how quickly they get demolished. Remember, that's a biblical term, not just a WWF term. Get demolished. We have to think about these things. Now, quickly in closing, I know my time's running short. Let me give you three examples of what non-theists will say. Now, remember, if they're, a, if they're a Muslim or if they're a Hindu, they're going to have different answers along those steps. And then that's actually easier to have a discussion because it's book in the man, book in the man. Let's go Krishna, Jesus, Bhagavad Gita, Bible. Let's go through it. Let's filter these things out and see where they, where they uh, take us. Well, let's just look at the secular worldview, the non-theistic worldview. Right now that's growing, maybe they say 10, 15, 20% that's out there. And a lot of entertainers adopt this and you'll meet them on the streets, etc. They'll say something like, I don't believe in absolute truth. Well, now you need to reply back to them. Do you absolutely believe that it's true that there are no absolute truths? Because if you are making an absolute truth claim, while at the same time denying you believe in absolute truth claims, you have contradicted yourself. Contradict much? What's the solution? There has to be an absolute truth as a foundation for all statements. Otherwise, everything we say would be nonsense. Remember, logic and the impossibility of the contrary. If there is no absolute truth, nothing can make sense. And we know it does because we're making sense right now. Uh, another non-theist might say, each person should be able to decide what is morally right for themselves. Now, what do you do? You turn that claim back on themselves. Frank Turek, and others have done great discussions on this. If you have time to get some of their books, okay? I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist would be a good place to start by Frank Turek. Does your decision about how each person should decide morality apply to everyone? Remember, they say, well, you know, we should be able to do whatever we want. Well, does that statement now apply to everyone? Because you're kind of telling everybody what they should want to let everybody do what they want. Because if you believe your decision about morality applies to everyone, while at the same time claiming that no one should make moral decisions for others, you're contradicting yourself. The solution is decisions must first be assumed to be universal, otherwise you would not project them onto others. If we, don't, if we didn't think thou shalt not murder is universal, then why are we even talking about it? If morals are not universal, why are we talking about them? And then three, I don't know if there's a God, and you don't know it either. No one knows. See, that's the, the ultra-humble one. They're just trying to be humble, but they're really being ignorant because you got to turn that claim back on itself. How do you know others don't know? Do you know everything? <laughs> because if you don't know everything that everyone knows while claiming that no one knows about God, then you're contradicting yourself. Maybe someone in China knows. Have you met everybody in China? 
The solution is all knowledge is spread by those who know to those who don't know. Therefore, those who don't know, don't know something or don't know something should be open to learn from those who claim to know something. So test our claims. We're okay with that, but check your foundations as you're testing our claims. Otherwise, no one would ever learn anything new. Here's the last ones. Here, here's what I hear a lot in Christian vocabulary. Sadly, in the Christian circle, we have a lot of silly non-Christian worldview ideas. You ever hear this one? Don't judge me because only God can judge me. What are you going to say back to that? Are you judging me? Because if you are making a judgment about me while claiming that no one but God should judge others, you're contradicting yourself. Didn't you just judge me by telling me not to judge? What's the way around that? Everyone makes judgments. Judgments are a good thing. The point is whether or not our judgments are based on the word of God. How many know you make a judgment when you hire a babysitter? Come on, somebody. Here's another example. If what you say hurts people's feelings, you're not acting Christ-like. This is kind of that Niceanity thing. If you hurt my feelings, are you not acting Christ-like? Maybe you hurt my feelings. Because if you don't care about hurting my feelings while making the claim that I shouldn't hurt other people's feelings, you're contradicting yourself. What's the solution there? Our feelings are not the arbiter of truth. God's word is. Last one here in closing. Christians should never try to change people's minds. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Are you as a Christian trying to change my mind? <laughs> because if you're trying to change my mind while believing that only the Holy Spirit can change my mind, you're contradicting yourself. What's the solution all communication, especially in regard to Christian subjects, is meant to change the mind to the mind of Christ. So what do we do in our worldview war? We have our mind changed and we're helping others change their mind. Ultimately, obviously, it's God's word and his spirit, but we're agents of that change, are we not? Romans 12, 1 through 2, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. After I pray, we can take questions. I mean, I'll hand it over to the professor and take any questions I have any time to discuss this. I'm not in a hurry. I'm on lockdown like everybody else, so I'll be here as long as you want. My, my prayer would be this before we close out. Do you and I see that we're in a battle of worldviews? Are you acknowledging that? Do you sense that? If you are, do you see that there's something you and I are supposed to do? We are supposed to demolish arguments and pretensions. That doesn't mean we disrespect the people we're disagreeing with, with. We love them. We honor them. We dignify them. But yet we take their ideas, their foundations, and we show them they're just made of sand. And in love, I believe as we do that more, Christianity will not be portrayed in sitcoms, TV shows, and on these talk shows as if we're backwoods ignoramuses. People will begin to have respect for what we're saying because they see how it fits into the world that they're viewing too. Because we have the answer, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for this wonderful time together. May our worldview be viewed the way you view the world. May we humble ourselves and study your word and come to the truth and knowledge of what it teaches us and share it humbly with our friends, families, and neighbors. And Lord, as we are in these uh, dialogues and discussions, may we always treat others the way we would want to be treated. 
sharing with them the truth in such a way that they can receive it. As Jude said, snatching them from hell or showing mercy on others, that God, we would do it with great care and compassion. And Lord, I ask that you will bring revival to our nation during this time while people's worldview has crumbled for many of them in front of them. May they see the rock of your son, Jesus Christ, and build their life upon him and use the school and everyone listening to me to be a part of that change. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. <clears throat> Come on, everyone give a shout out. That's a good word. And if you don't want to give a shout out, then I tell you what, there's times when I have to check my own self because if it's not being lined up with Jesus, it's going to crumble. You know, uh, we're going to have just a little bit of discussion, Pastor Joe, uh, with you. And I, I think one of the statements that I, I would like to just uh, open up with in this is, is what you just brought about is because, you know, throughout my life, and uh, that's been a, a long journey with Jesus, we've heard that statement, don't judge me. Um, guys, the truth of the matter is, judgment has already been had because you've made the judgment call yourself. Mm. Um, you've already judged yourself by, you know, releasing yourself from living like Jesus or whatever. So let's, let's have a little discussion about that um, in the culture that we're living in. Because guys, uh, you, you know, those of you that are, um, you know, of a, of a younger generation, this is something that you're going to have to continue to face. We're all facing it. Um, but in the culture, I've watched, I watched a shift, you know, since I was youth pastoring. And that shift is that don't judge me has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the truth of the matter is uh, in the church world, we've adopted that. Mm -hmm. And that is why people even in the church in Christianity are sinking today because they've used that line, don't judge me, as, as a, a platform for not living a Christian life, um, which has really caused them to sink in times of difficulty. So let's open it up and let's just talk a little bit about that, about that statement. Um, don't judge me, don't judge me. And then we can let it flow. You know, we've got some time here. Pastor Joe, you said you've got time. Yes, I do. Right, I let's let's roll it out. Let's just roll it out. Amen. Give some thoughts about that statement. Let's, let's dialogue about that in light of what Pastor Joe has just talked about. Anybody? Anybody have ever had that statement made or made it yourself? Well, I think that there is a way to tactfully <coughs> and with care bring, I wouldn't even necessarily say judgment, but bring accountability to someone. I don't think that we have to be like confrontational con condemning necessarily. We're not condemning them, but by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're bringing maybe that correction or that accountability, but I think there's a way to tactfully do it out of love. I think that love and care takes a huge part in it. I think that just being confrontational, like what, what is that saying? I mean, I think that it's really important to me. What is it? Uh, rebuke without relationship leads to rebellion. And I think that that, is kind of where this comes from when you rebuke someone in love and with care and with tact because you have that rapport with them because you have that relationship with them they're going to be in my opinion more apt to take that into consideration rather than some somebody in the church or someone who's a pastor that they don't know just coming at them with condemnation and with with that really you know like clashing confrontation i think that that, that might not get you as far 
Okay, somebody else. Thank you, Becca. You mentioned uh, Christians are not supposed to change their mind. That is the Holy Spirit. And I think that's one of the biggest uh, things that I was learning during Mardi Gras was that um, when you're ministering to somebody or when you're evangelizing, you definitely do need the Holy Spirit and that discernment to minister to that person. That way it's, it's a flow through conversation. So I think that was just a great reminder for me to even apply it in such a time as this, because we're ministering to people socially, not necessarily uh, face-to-face conversations, but it was definitely a great word. So yeah. Amen. Thank you, Alex. Oh, uh, Alexis, I'm sorry. Somebody else got any questions for Pastor Joe um, concerning maybe the, the statement of, you know, the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit does bring conviction. Um, I, I think that uh, what Becca had to say was very powerful. Um, if people don't perceive that you love them, they're not going to hear you. And it's not love does speak true. So it's, it's and love can hurt. God's word says those that, you know, he, those he loves, he disciplines. So love is not a gushy thing that we feel. Matter of fact, love can be feel good all the time if we receive truth. <laughs> so, so what is your thoughts on, on, you know, how to deliver? How do, how do we deliver the word? Um, how do you deliver the word? You know, I, I think there's some vital points uh, to that. Um, come on now, your students here, this is a free time to just have some good dialogue. I think that's something good to say. I think like going off of what you were saying that um, it reminds me of a quote from Greg Coco. He he is a great speaker, very, very quick. But he he always would say, if anybody gets mad, you lose. If you're having a conversation with somebody else and you get mad, then you're not going to have a good witness to them. And they're going to think that you're just all that you're that you're like turning turning your nose up at them that you that you think that they're not good enough that but basically they're not going to be willing to accept what you say to them if you say it in anger but in the midst of the conversation you are they what what you say is if if you're not sorry if you're not being really tactful and what you say gets on their nerves in a bad way and they get angry at you they're going to want to stop listening to you so it's like a balance between you obviously we have to absolutely speak the truth and we take the truth seriously and we give them and even when people don't like it we speak the truth but if you're in a conversation with somebody you have to be very careful in how you conduct yourself in that because we have, we have to show people like Jesus Jesus loves them but we have the truth so we got to show them that we have the truth but in the same loving way that Jesus did because G- the Pharisees got real mad at Jesus when he spoke the truth but he still loved people yeah that's good. good love is God <clears throat> right guys the because love is value love, value love says I value you and I value you enough to even tell you the truth and you're gonna hate me um, real quick story, when I was youth pastoring, 
Um, love working with young people for this reason. I had two young people that were, uh, they were teenagers, 16, maybe 16, 17 years old. They got involved sexually. I found out about it. I, um, had, to go, I had to go confront that. Here's the reason why I confronted it. Because if I did not confront that, then what I was saying is I love myself more than I love you. And loving yourself says I'm going to protect myself because if I say something to you, you might not want relationship with me anymore. Now, these were when I was wrestling as a young youth pastor, working through some of my worldviews of how I was going to even youth pastor. Because back in those days, we didn't have youth pastors. Hello. But the truth is, I sat down and spoke to them in love. Then I told them they needed to go to tell their parents. I wasn't going to tell their parents. They needed to. Gave them a time frame, and they did. To this day, do you know, both of them are married now, uh, you know, to each other. To this day, do you know who still calls me? They do. And you know why? Because they know that I'm willing to confront them in the middle of what they were going through and, and, and allow them to separate me relationally if I confronted them and they didn't like it. So, you know, love does tell the truth. Jesus told the truth and some people didn't like him, but he still loved them anyway. That's the value. You guys, you got to think about that. That's, that's where you really begin to know, am I a Jesus lover or am I a lover of myself? Because self protects itself. Real love puts itself on the line. Anybody else? Good stuff. Jesus sets us free, right, Pastor Joe? Are you there, Pastor Joe? You, you can jump in here, Pastor Joe. Yeah, my, my concern is um, almost the first three comments really concern me. Um, the first young lady, basically, like, basically you guys almost all fell into the same trap that I was talking about. And so I'm going to love you all and have a little confrontation with you about it in, in grace. And I'll show you how it's done in a good way. Uh, the first one said, uh, you know, love is the most supreme thing, and uh, this love has to really be forefront. But when she went on from there, it was exactly what I was concerned about. And that is, you're defining love based on how they see it. And uh, I don't know, I don't want to pick favorites, but John Leslie already is kind of getting where I'm going. And you guys don't have to agree with me, but if you're going to disagree with me, let's let's talk it through, because... Jesus is love and Jesus offended. Then the other sister, she mentioned the Holy Spirit. And I don't know, and I appreciate the compliment, but I don't know if you understood my, my point there. My point was, we cannot simply say only the Holy Spirit does this. And so I'm just going to leave that with them now. The point is, we will have face-to-face -face disagreements with the people. And when they want to retreat to the Holy Spirit, we don't accept that as an answer. We're not to force them, but we don't accept that. We say to them, that is not a Christian way of doing conduct. Timothy doesn't retreat to go pray about it after Paul rebukes and corrects. And then thirdly, the last person really concerned me because I love Greg Kokel, uh, and both of them uh, said one-liners. And you got to understand, see, I'm going to come back at you to think about this. Your one-liners, neither one of them were scriptural. One said, uh, rebuke without relationship is uh, an offense or something like that. There's nothing in the scriptures that say it. it actually says the opposite. It says, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. So it would be better for someone to rebuke you and to give their best shot at truth with you than to always love you in secret. 
That's actually the Bible. And then my friend said, it would, you know, this is where we get the, ah, uh, uh, Kokel said this. Well, who cares what Kokel says? Kokel, or who cares what I say? Kokel has to give the same account to his worldview as I do, right? So Kokel and I are both Christians. So Kokel, and I've heard him say this, if you've gotten angry, you've lost. Well, Jesus got angry, and that's why I was waiting to see where you were going with that. Jesus got angry on multiple occasions. And it even says that he called a woman a dog. And I could, we could go into this at another time, but Elijah got angry. These are all the prophets. Now, what's the difference between that and Moses getting angry and sinning? The Bible says that the sin of anger is unrighteous because it comes with this baggage of lack of care, concern, name calling. We could go through what makes anger sinful. But to say in an argument with somebody about heaven or hell, I will not get angry is to say you're going to do something other than Christ has done. You're basically saying I'm more Christ-like than Christ, or I'm more of an apostle than Paul, etc. So any three of you want to come back on that, you can, but I don't, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I'm actually saying what you guys are saying troubles me, because if you think once somebody gets angry, like they get angry, I've lost, well, then that would just think about Jesus. Pharisees got angry, Jesus lost. See, you, 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 tw- you changed the statement and you put it back on to them. But no, your statement was, if either one gets angry, they lose. And if you're trying to say that Jesus provoking anger means he lose, you got to clarify that. See, Jesus provoked anger all the time. You don't crucify somebody you love. So did Jesus lose the argument because the Pharisees couldn't walk away and give him a dab? No, Jesus stood his ground in love. So I just, I want to make sure that you guys get where I'm coming from. If you don't agree, please, I'm not getting paid for you to agree with me. I don't get paid at all by the way. This, I even, I, I'm so used to saying that as a pastor, okay? You don't have to agree with me. I just, I just don't understand how you guys are getting that out of the message I, I just shared. It almost seemed in some ways the opposite of what I shared. And John, I just want to give that back to you. I want to say something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, please. But before you do, I just um, want to ask you know what? I John, totally is it okay if we do this? Because I don't want to be rude in yeah, any way. No, yeah, yeah. Wait, go ahead. What, what's your question there, Pastor? Okay, good. What's your question, Pastor? What were you, what were you, you said you wanted to give it back to me? Were you, go oh, ahead. yeah. I just wanted to make sure that you didn't feel us having a worldview discussion. Even no, here. no, no. Okay. No, this right here, listen, yeah. guys, this is very healthy. Yeah. It, is, it is very healthy. Part of what I'm seeing in the culture that we're living in is that what pastor is saying as far as anger is concerned, the moment anger hits, we think that it's something that is wrong, okay? Pastor, I think that in our conversation here, if you can define, you started to define what, um, you know, uh, what, what causes anger to become sinful. I think therein lies some of the issue because in our culture, we're taught to love everybody. And guys, this is, this is where we are. If you listen to Worldview, I've got to deal with this with my teenage kids who go to public school. I've got to teach them the same thing. I've got to continue to counteract them because that's a statement that is made all the time. Don't judge me. All right? That is, if we fall into that trap, then exactly what Pastor Joe is trying to say, we become ensnared. Pastor Joe, if you can just... You go ahead and describe the, the sinfulness of, of anger that made Jesus's anger very different from the anger of the Pharisees. Amen. Thank you. Well, just to start with the scriptures, 
in the Old Testament building to Jesus. And we, I believe Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He's not the Father, but he's present with the Father. He's been the mediator. He was there with uh, Abraham on the plains of Mamre, meeting with Moses, etc. So when the Lord is speaking, or the word of the Lord, I take that to be the person of Jesus, okay? So a lot of times people want to start with Jesus in the New Testament at his incarnation, but who is Jesus in the Old Testament? And let me just, not to take a rabbit trail, but just so you guys can understand this, the Bible says no one has seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, who is at the right hand of the Father, has made him known. See, the Lord appears to Abraham. Well, if we haven't seen the Father, who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? It's Jesus. Jesus shares the name Yahweh with the Father. And how do we know that the Father and Son both take the name of Yahweh? This is Genesis, right at the beginning. When uh, Abraham intercedes with the Lord, and then the angels go down, so it's two angels and the Lord who visit with Abraham, the Bible then says after the angels are sent to bring destruction, look at how the destruction actually comes. It says, then the Lord rain down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. This is very good for you to understand your triune nature, the triune nature of your God. This was one of the early church fathers' arguments for the Trinity. There are two persons who both identify as Lord. So just real quick, whenever we're talking about Jesus, if you think Jesus is someone different than the one raining down fire and brimstone, if you think Jesus is different than the one I'm going to show you in Zechariah, then you're already causing a conflict. And this is another wrong way of thinking that Old Testament God is one way, New Testament God's another way. And it's the same Jesus, remember? Same yesterday, today, and forever. So uh, uh, just, just real quick here. So when we look at the passages of anger with the Lord, we understand that God is love, but he's also holy. Those two attributes give us the full, encompass the two full natures of how, how we can relate to God. So in that passage that I was going to read you here in, um, I believe it's in Nehemiah, uh, Zechariah, it says, the Lord was angry with your ancestors. So we understand that the Lord is angry at times, okay? So when the Bible says, be angry and sin not, all we have to do is look back at the Old Testament and understand what anger was and where it was good. Anger towards evil, anger towards false beliefs, anger towards those kinds of things. Now, what, what, what is ungodly anger? Well, Jesus says it in Matthew 5.22. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, you fool, or raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of hell. So name-calling can lead us into ungodly anger. But now you go, okay, well, then we can't call each other fools, right? We shouldn't call each other fools because that's a, that's a name that Jesus said, if you call somebody, then you're in judgment of hell. Hold on. Jesus called people fools. So do we have a contradiction? But God said to him, you fool, this very night, uh, do you not know that your life will be demanded of you? And then in his rebuke in, in the book of Matthew, uh, 27, to the Pharisees, uh, no, excuse me, I believe it's 23, he calls them fools. So now we have to actually go down a little bit deeper. It's not just name calling, it's a certain kind of name calling. So when Jesus says, you blind fools, after already saying, if you call somebody a fool, you're in judgment of hell, is he contradicting himself? No, 
a name that is called to someone without the benefit of exposing their ideology or their behavior is a name that is a, as the Bible says, an unwholesome word or words that are without meaning. But Jesus, when he called them a fool, had meaning. The book of Proverbs calls people fools all the time. The book of Proverbs actually calls people stupid. Now, we tell our children, don't call people stupid, right? Don't, don't say the word stupid. You shouldn't do that. And, and there's a truth to that. We shouldn't call people stupid. But what, what are we saying is the meaning between uh, calling somebody stupid and, and calling somebody a fool is a good or bad thing? Like, what, what is the difference? The difference is if I say this behavior is stupid or I say you're acting stupid, you're acting foolish, and I do that from a heart of love for your benefit, I have not violated the scripture. But those very same words, if I use against you to try to exalt myself, put you down, I'm being unwholesome. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. I could also show you swearing in the Bible. When, when Jesus called the woman a dog, we take that and we go, you know, a dog, what's the big deal? If I called you a female dog, you would say that's swearing, the B word. What do you think being called a snake or a dog was in that culture? That was the highest level. Now, did Jesus swear like we would unwholesomely without a meaning behind calling them snakes and dogs? No, he called the Seraphonician woman a dog because their nation, her nation, had afflicted the Israelite people. And now that their Messiah is there, she wants to be an opportunist to receive from Jesus. And he said, why should I give the dogs anything? The, the crumbs, they just go to the dogs. Why should I give you more? But what does she do? Does she snap back and go, hey, who you calling a dog? You know? No, no, no. She says, okay, if I'm a dog, I'm a dog. But even dogs get the crumbs. Come on, let me get something here. Right? When the snakes and vipers were called by Jesus, they could have stopped and said, Jesus, why are you calling me a snake? Jesus, why are you calling me a viper? Why are you cursing, literally cursing? Like the Bible says in Deuteronomy 28, these curses will come on you. And we try to curse, but we, we, we're sinful when we do it nine times out of ten because we just do it out of anger, not out of righteous anger. Anger alone is not enough. You need righteousness in the anger. And so I would say when we start taking things off the table, we now make Christ out to contradict himself. And if someone was to say, well, I'm not Christ and nor are you, then how am I supposed to live like Jesus unless I follow him? Are you going to cut out things in the scripture and say, well, we follow Christ in this way when he's with the woman at the well. That we do. But we don't do snakes, vipers, whitewashed tombs, fools over here. We, we don't do that. My thing is have a realistic understanding of Jesus. Jesus is coming as the prophets came because Jesus is the word that came to the prophets. Do you know that one of the prophets said, this, is, this sounds to us just so crazy, but the, the prophets at one point said, you are so caught up in your whoredom, you are like a she-animal that looks for the biggest male genitalia and has the most semen. Now, me just saying that to most people, it, it would make you feel like I have just become the most crass, unbecoming person. That's in your Bible. So now if you have a problem with that, you're actually siding with the Oprahs or you're siding with the Muslims or someone who's going to attack Christianity because what they're going to say is, look at what your Bible says. This is so uh, not politically correct. You don't believe this, do you? You know that, that uh, Jewish people were whoring, going after the largest uh, genitalia, et cetera. You don't believe God would talk like that. that that's how they, 
they will get you to think that your worldview is not lining up with a better worldview. So they'll try to trick you into that. And so I'm preparing you to understand like that's in the Bible. Prophets spoke like that. The prophet, think about this, Elijah mocked them and then he murdered them. Now, is it murder or is it judgment? See, if, they, if it's an atheist talking to you, who's going to say he murdered them? He did a Jim Jones on them. But why do you say it's judgment? Because your worldview says they deserve to die. Why did the prophets of Baal deserve to die that day? And that just wasn't a mass murder. They'll also point out to you places like Samson. Samson was the first suicidal bomber. He takes down the pillars, kills all these people. You see these problems I'm creating for you? The, the reason why we have these problems is because we can't deal with the context. The context is our God calls names. Our God gets angry. The context is there's people who die in our Bible. If you don't believe it in the Old Testament, look at the, the blood being as high as a horse's head for 300 miles in the New Testament. So instead of glorying in this, like we're sadistic, we should you know, put this as a part of our worldview. Our worldview allows for prophets to be that vocal and how they describe sin. Our world, you guys get what I'm saying? I don't want to preach it again, but our worldview allows Christians to be angry. Our worldview allows judgment. And uh, we got to be careful to do both sides, you know, the, the love and the holiness. Thank I don't know, you. I went a long time. No, no, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Joe. No, you're good. We're good. So, so guys, very, very, let me just wrap this up here as we, you know, um, step out here. I want to appreciate this conversation. I think one of the greatest things that we need to understand is even ourselves that if we are standing in a place of love, we're doing it for the benefit of that person, even though the strength of what we're saying might um, be offensive to them. We, we've got to be very, um, uh, you know, Jesus went after people hard because he loved them. He loved hard. And I'm going to say that he had fearless love. And fearless love was because he never wanted any, God's word says, he's not willing that any would perish, okay? Throughout scripture, you see Jesus talking uh, in language that is very strong and, and would seem harsh, but in the middle of the words, we got to look down deep into what he was really going after. He was going after a, a people that would, you know, not be separated from him. That's the bottom line. God doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. He, eternal, he created us as eternal beings, as sons and daughters. And sons and daughters, he does not want to be separated from. So in, in, our, in our approach, as, as, Pastor, Joe, as Pastor Joe is, is sharing here, it, truth has to be spoken. But we have to also know the motive of why we're saying what we're saying. And if we look at Jesus, absolutely, Jesus was saying, I love you so much. I'm not willing for you to perish or be separated from me. I'm going to tell you truth. I'm going to tell you truth. Because you see, there's only, there's two fathers in this world. There's the father of, of truth, right? And then there's the father of lies. Truth leads us to abundant living, a, a greater lifestyle, a healthier lifestyle. Lies lead us to destruction. So we've got to choose which one is going to lead us to the, the healthiest place. And that's in, that's found in God's word. God is, you know, we talk about holiness. Holiness is very, holiness of God has to do with living holistically, in abundance, in health. And, and I'm not talking about prosperity as far as money is concerned. I'm talking about a healthy soul, a healthy way of living that produces the fruit of God. 
in people's lives. So, so with that said, just be very mindful. You know, you can speak things. I, I've spoken things to people that they didn't want to hear. They got mad at me. Just because you see anger that they're producing, does that mean that you're doing something wrong? That means that they've got to confront some things in their life that need to be confronted. And you're just the agent that gets to do that. And you do it with love. If you're the kind of Christian I grew up around with some people, and I grew up around a lot of Italian people, okay? I'm Italian. Just get me. Understand that. I'm Italian. Italians talk with, they talk with their hands, they're fast, or all kinds of stuff. They can be very harsh at times, all right? Some of the greatest people that I've ever been around, I want to smack upside their head because I'm saying, listen, you know, you can talk a little bit differently. Here's the truth. You can speak truth in love, absolutely. And the point is this. If you're some of those Christians, you don't sit there and want to be the finger pointer. That's, that's not of God. Not, not in, listen, but you can still point them to truth and bring them into truth. But that's going to be your motive. And only you know. And guess what? God knows what your motive is. So if you're that person that said, aha, you know, pointing the finger because you, you're better than somebody, you're just as bad as the, as, as, as the other individual. It's not about, about being better, okay, uh, or better than somebody. It's about pointing G people to Jesus, the truth that sets them free. So good stuff, Pastor Joe. Hey, I've got to talk with you more. I'd love to sit down and talk. talk. Are you Italian, by the way? Half Italian, half Polish, baby. Uh, I got Polish and Italian in you. Okay. I got French Canadian in me as well. I picked up on some of your Italianness in yourself. There we go. Good stuff. Okay. Uh, hey, guys. Jared had a question. Should I send him my own Zoom room that he can join me in afterward, or do you want to leave this? Yeah, open? that would be great. This way, other people can leave if they got class or whatever, like that. That would yeah. be great. Okay. Hey, guys, let's just uh, give God uh, praise for the rest of this uh, time. Let's pray us out. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we had to be uh, in this uh, moment together. Thank you for the truths, Lord God, that were presented to us uh, through Pastor Joe. Thank you that, Lord God, you enable us to wrestle through, Lord God, these dynamics. God, that we're not just doing things just because we've been told them, but God, we really come to faith by being stretched into um, newer, uh, clearer realities. Lord, thank you that you're not willing. One of the realities is, you're not willing that any should perish. Your word says that you're married to the backslider, but you're angry with the sin that separates people from you. So God, I pray that you'd help us to be beacons of light, of truth, of Lord God, seeing people set free. God, I thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, be blessed. Pastor Joe, we'll be in touch with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to put my Zoom room in the link for everybody. Oh, there you go. Okay, go right ahead. If you want to continue on with Pastor Joe, go right ahead, okay? Okay, just give me a second, brother, before you disconnect us. I will, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Sure, sure. Just getting the link. Our church has been using this. We had to get another one. I mean, it's just been so many things <laughs> you have to adjust to, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Share this to whoever wants to come. I'll be heading there right now. Thank you again, my brother. It was great hanging out with you, hey, too. It was awesome. I, you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And I hear wonderful things about your wife as she's been leading the, uh, the cohorts. Just great things. We're yeah, happy to be with I, you guys and serving together. Oh, praise God. She's a good woman. Can I get that link one more time? I just put it in the chat room. Okay. Do you Perfect. see it? Uh... Five seven three one six eight four four nine seven. Thank you.